Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, Grace and Truth, a study of the book 1 Corinthians. Here's Pastor Nick. That last week, when Pastor Mike taught, Paul basically laid this out. He, re- he listed some of these immoral practices, and he said, these things are sin. And then he said, you know, these kinds of things that you're doing, these are more things related to who you used to be before you followed Jesus, before you were redeemed by Jesus. It's not who you are now. This is who you were. It's not who you are. Now you're followers of Jesus. Now you're saved. Now you've been washed and redeemed. And what Jesus did when he died for you on the cross and rose from the grave, Jesus didn't only come to forgive your past. He also came to give you a new future. He came to, give you, to make you a new person, to set your life on a whole new course. So why would you continue doing things that are sin and that God has said not to do? And so, picking up in verse 12, look at what Paul says. He says, all things are lawful for me. And then in verse 13, he says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now, notice that both these phrases in your, in your text, they're in quotation marks. In other words, these aren't things that Paul is saying, and he's saying this is true. He is quoting from common arguments that people would give in order to justify their immoral behavior, in order to say, here's why it's okay to visit prostitutes. Here's why it's okay to have these sexual relationships that are outside the bounds of what God has laid out in Scripture as being the boundaries for for sexual activity. And the first argument there in verse 12, some people would say, all things are lawful for me. And what that meant essentially was this, hey, I'm not doing anything illegal. That's really the argument they would make. In other words, they would say, hey, this isn't against the law. These are two consenting adults doing whatever they want to do. Listen, prostitution was legal in that society. In fact, it wasn't only legal, it was exceedingly common. Prostitution was so common in Corinth that we know that there was a euphemism in the Roman Empire at that time where they would say that a Corinthian companion That was a euphemism for a prostitute. So prostitution was legal, and it was common in Corinth. And so basically, the the Corinthian Christians would say, hey, visiting a prostitute is perfectly legal around here, right? And also, sleeping with someone who I'm not married to, if we're both consenting adults, that's not against the law. So if I'm not breaking any laws, and I'm not hurting anybody, then how can that possibly be bad? Furthermore, somebody would say, and this is the second argument that Paul brings up that he quotes that some people would, would use. Some people would say, food is, for the bo- is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And what they meant by this is that just as when your body is hungry, you give it a sandwich, when your body wants sex, you give it sex. That's all. It's that simple. As human beings, just as we have hunger and we feed our stomachs, we also have sensual cravings and desires. And the healthy thing to do is to satisfy those desires. In other words, fulfilling your sexual urges is no different than eating a sandwich when you're hungry or going to the bathroom when nature calls. That's what these people would say. They say these are natural desires. It's how your body functions. So if we can do it in a way that's not illegal and doesn't hurt anybody, how could that possibly be wrong? 
We're not hurting anybody. We're not breaking any laws. Why does God care what we do then? The way that people thought about prostitution back then in Corinth, you know what it's most similar to in our day and age? See, for us, we hear prostitution. We're like, oh, that's, that's gnarly stuff, right? That's serious business. But you know what prostitution for them was most similar to in our day and age? It would be pornography. And here's why. Because people would say, hey, people have natural, sensual desires, and you're not hurting anybody, you're not breaking the law, so it shouldn't be a problem, right? You're just getting it out and you're feeling okay. And the, the question is, why does God care what you do with your body? Take a look at how Paul responds. In verse 12, Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. Again, quoting the, the argument that people would make. But I will not be dominated by anything. So first of all, here's an important point. Just because something is legal doesn't mean that it's good. See, here's the thing. God loves you, and he wants what is best for you. Do you know that? Are you, are you sure of that? Because it's true. And so listen, if, if that's true, then if God tells you not to do something, it is only and always because in his wisdom, he knows something that you don't. Is that hard for us to believe? That God actually knows something that we don't? That he knows more than we do? That he's wiser than we are? That should be pretty easy for us to believe. And so if God is wiser than we are, then listen, you know what the essence of faith is? The essence of faith is trusting God enough to do what he says. Right? So it's trusting that God really does love you, that he really is pretty smart and wise, and that if he tells you to do something, it is always for your benefit and always because he loves you. And faith means trusting him enough to do what he says, even when you don't see it. You know, there are a lot of things that aren't against the law, but they're still not a very good idea. You, you can make a list for yourself. Things that are perfectly legal and are really dumb. Okay? Like, you could pound your head against the wall and the police won't do anything. You could pound a nail through your hand, and no one will stop you from doing that, right? Like you won't get arrested or a citation. You can drink a gallon of paint, uh, but that doesn't mean that you should. And so, in other words, as followers of Jesus, we don't just ask the question, is it legal when we're making a decision? We ask a bigger, more important question. Is it good? Is it helpful? Does this thing help me or hinder me in my relationship with God? In fulfilling or sharing, fulfilling God's purpose for my life or, or sharing the, the love and truth of God with the world? Another question that this text says that we should ask is, not just is it legal, is it helpful, but also will it dominate me? In other words, uh, will it enslave me? Is this thing going to help me to achieve my goals and callings as a follower of Jesus? Or is it taking away from that and distracting from me? Is it stealing from me resources and time? Is it making me an addict in one form or another? Or, you know, should I do it, even if it's not necessarily sin? Sometimes one of the questions people ask me is they'll ask me, Pastor Nick, is it a sin for me to do this? And they'll fill in the blank. Is it a sin for me to do this? And what I almost always tell them is, that's the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question to begin with. Think about it like this. Think about it like if I got married, and then the day after I got married, I picked up the phone, called the police department. I said, hello, police department. Would you please give me a list I've got a pen. I'm going to write it down. Give me a list of all the things I'm not allowed to do to my wife according to the law, 
right? That would be a pretty weird question to ask, wouldn't it, right? Like, that's not the kind of question that, like, a loving husband should ask. He, the question a loving husband asks is not, what can I not do according to the law to my wife? The question a loving husband asks is, what can I do to my wife that will bring her the most joy and pleasure and happiness? And guess what? Those things are probably not against the law. In other words, asking the question, is it a sin for me to do this, is probably the wrong question for you to ask. The right question to ask is rather this. Will this thing please the Lord? Will this thing help me or hinder me in running the race that God has set before me? Will this thing add to or take away from my pursuit of God and his purposes and calling for my life? So in making a decision, Paul gives us three questions to ask. Number one, is it legal? Also related to that is, is it biblical, right? Does the Bible talk about it? And if it's, if, if the Bible doesn't talk about it and it's not against the law, then you move on to the next question. But if the Bible does talk about it, you've got your answer, all right? That's easy. Um, next, so is it legal? Is it biblical? Next question is, okay, if it's not addressed in the Bible directly, then the next question is, is it helpful, is it helpful? And the third question is, is it enslaving? Does it serve you or does it make you serve it? But then in verse 13, Paul gets right down to the question of why God even cares, right? Like, why does God care about what you do with your body? And here's what he says. Food is meant for the body, or for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God will raise, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying that what you do with your body sexually is not the same as eating a sandwich when you're hungry or going to the bathroom when nature calls. Why? Because those things are temporary, right? They will not last for eternity. They have no eternal value or significance. But what you do with your body in regard to sex affects you in a way that's different from the way that food affects you. Why is that? Here's why. Because we are embodied beings. Embodied beings. Remember our sentence? It says this, we are embodied beings. What does that mean? It means that God created you as a whole person, as a whole person, you have a spirit, and he placed that spirit inside of your body. In other words, you're not just like a brain that happens to have legs. God created you as an embodied being, body, mind, and spirit. You are one being, and those three areas are connected. Your body's a major part of who you are and how you live in the world. And guess what? When your body dies, your life here on earth ends. And what the Bible teaches is that what you do with your body here on earth has implications for all of eternity. Think about how that is. What you do with your body here on earth has implications for all of eternity. What you do with your body now can affect your eternal destiny. It can affect the destinies of others. It can have other eternal ramifications. With your body, you can sin, or with your body, you can be connected to God, respond to God, be united to God. But either way, what you do with your body can have ramifications for all of eternity. And that brings us to the second part of our sentence. As embodied beings, what we do with our bodies has spiritual significance. 
Hey, Pastor Nick here. Are you looking for a resource to help you answer some of the most difficult questions about God in the Bible? Then we've got good news for you. I've written a book called The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity. In this book, I deal directly with some of the biggest questions people struggle with, such as how a loving God can allow innocent people to suffer, or whether God condoned genocide in the Old Testament, or whether the Bible encourages the suppression of women and minorities. Does the Bible really say that some kinds of love are wrong? And is there actual proof that God exists and that the Bible is trustworthy? I address these topics and more in this book, which is a great resource for anyone who wrestles with doubts or who has concerns about these topics. And it's a great resource for those who want to help others who have questions about these topics. So to purchase this book, search for The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity, wherever books are sold, or visit nickkady.org. And to celebrate the release of this book, we are offering a free copy of the book as a gift to any of our listeners who make a donation of any amount to support Be Set Free Radio at besetfreeradio.com. And now back to today's message. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now, Greek people, most Greek people, believed in something called dualism. Now, dualism. Dualism, and the reason I bring this up is because many people today also have a dualistic view of the world, right? So dualism is kind of the opposite of understanding that we are embodied beings. Let me explain. Dualism basically says that there's a physical aspect of life and there's a spiritual aspect of life. The physical is what you can see, touch, and feel, and the spiritual is unseen. But dualism says that these two realms, the spiritual and the physical, they never touch. They never connect. They're not related at all to one another. In other words, they would say there's nothing spiritual in the physical realm, and there's nothing physical about the spiritual realm. Now, that's different than what the Bible teaches. And this dualistic view of the world, it leads to kind of two major ways of approaching life. On the one hand, it leads to one attitude is hedonism, which is kind of just wanton indulgence of, of physical appetites. The idea that if the physical world has no spiritual significance, then you should just indulge all of your physical appetites, do whatever you want with whomever you want, uh, because it's just physical. It doesn't, ma- it doesn't affect your soul. On the other hand, though, you have the other end of the spectrum, which is asceticism. Now, asceticism is the idea that says this. The physical world has no significance for the spiritual world. Therefore, you should reject all physical pleasure. Instead, you should only do things that are spiritual, and those things are only like prayer and reading the Bible and things like this, right? This is where we get the ascetics, the monks who would go live in the middle of nowhere, right? And they would only pray and only read the Bible and separate themselves from society. That's where these ideas come from, that that's more holy and more spiritual. But what the Bible teaches is something very different. Rather than a dualistic view of the world, the Bible teaches that we are embodied beings and that what we do with our bodies has spiritual significance. That's why he says in verse 15, your bodies are members of the body of Christ. 
In other words, one of the ways that God does his work is through your hands. You know, God does work supernaturally. He works in unseen ways, miraculous, unseen ways. But you know what else? He also works very much in very practical ways through other people's lives and actions and works. And God wants to do his work in very practical ways through you as well. In other words, it isn't only praying and, and meditating on Scripture that are spiritual activities. Uh, physical things can also be spiritual activities. Building, giving, speaking, working. These are all activities that have spiritual significance. Everything you do in your life physically can have spiritual significance. Every aspect of your life can be done in service to God and as a way of doing God's work in the world. So here, at the end of chapter 6, understand this. Paul is addressing those who held a hedonistic view that said that what we do with our bodies doesn't have any spiritual significance. And Paul says, no, no, no. Think again. What you do with your bodies has incredible spiritual significance. That's why he says in verse 18, therefore, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. In other words, not only are you hurting yourself when you sin in these ways, but you are failing to remember that you have been redeemed by Jesus, and therefore your life is no longer your own. He has purchased you at the cost of his life. He has purchased you out of slavery, out of bondage, out of destruction, and made you his own. So to answer the question, why does God care what you do with your body? Paul would say, wait a second. Who said it was your body to begin with? You belong to Jesus, right? You answer to him. You take your cues and directives from him. That's what it means that he is your Lord. Now, remember, that's what Paul said now to the hedonists there at the end of chapter 6. But in the opening verses of chapter 7, Paul is now going to speak to the ascetics as well, those who believed that all physical pleasure was dirty or unspiritual or bad. Look at what he says in chapter 7, verse 1. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Notice that's in quotes. He's quoting what they said to him. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. So whereas some people in the, in the Corinthian church were visiting prostitutes and having sexually immoral relationships, there were others in the church who were going to the exact opposite extreme. Rather than being hedonists, they were being ascetics. And they were saying this, sex is bad and you shouldn't do it even if you're married. Even if you're married. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not it either. We are embodied beings, which means there's a good and healthy and God-given place for sex in your life, and that is within the relationship of marriage. And Paul points out, this is not only true for men, but importantly, he says this is also true for women. Look at what he says in verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Again, the issue here is that some people 
had this idea that it was more spiritual not to have sex even if you were married. And Paul says, no, that's a terrible idea. That's not spiritual at all. If you're married, you become one flesh. So not only do you belong to God as a child of God, but as a husband and wife, you belong to each other. So not only do you want to serve God with your body, you also want to serve your spouse and help them to walk with God. And part of that includes helping them to avoid unnecessary temptations by being satisfied physically and emotionally in you as their spouse. Look at what Paul says in verse 6. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. What is Paul saying? Listen, Paul was single. And he thought that being single was actually pretty great. Now, there's some pretty good evidence which suggests that at one time in his life, Paul was actually married. But we do know that at this point in his life, for sure, Paul was single. Now, we'll get into more about why some people believe Paul was married at one point in his life. And we'll get into more about why Paul thinks that singleness is a really good thing in our study next week. But for now, let me just point out to you what he says in verse 6. Paul refers to singleness as a gift from God. Now, I've met a lot of single people who do not view their singleness as a gift from God. Many of them view it as a curse. Why, God? They, they feel like they're missing out on living a whole and fulfilled life. But let me remind you that Jesus, the person we follow, the greatest, most perfect person who ever lived, was single. He wasn't missing out in any way. Look at what Paul says here in verses 8 and 9. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Listen, what the Bible is telling us here is that the goal of life, the pinnacle of existence, is not finding a partner and getting married. That is not the greatest thing in life. There's a bigger goal. There's a higher calling. There's a greater purpose, which we have. Our purpose and our goal is that we have been purchased and redeemed by Jesus. Therefore, he has set out a course for our lives. And our goal, our purpose in life is to run that race that God has set before us. And if marriage helps you do that, then good. But you don't need to be married in order to do it. And if you're not married, that doesn't make you incomplete or unfulfilled in any way. Listen, I hope that we as a church can be a place where single people can be comfortable, where married people can come, where widows can be here, and all the rest and everyone who comes can find a community where they are known and loved and embraced and surrounded by other people who will support them in their journey of following Jesus, no matter what stage of life they're at. That brings us to the final point here, which is this. As embodied beings, what we do with our bodies has spiritual significance. And knowing this helps us understand and respond to what Jesus did for us. Friends, the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is that in the person of Jesus, God became one of us. He became an embodied being. The Bible tells us that God is spirit, and as, as a spirit, no one has ever seen God. And yet, Rather than just snapping his fingers and making all the problems go away, God took on a physical body. He came to our physical world in order to save us through his physical actions. Through our sins that we committed in our flesh, in this physical world, we have heaped up for ourselves an eternity's worth of judgment and condemnation. But God, because of his great love for you, 
Peter puts it this way. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, a physical body, a physical tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, physical wounds, you have been healed. It's saying that Jesus, through his physical actions, healed our spiritual sickness. He died so we might live no longer for sin and destruction, but for righteousness. Friends, the reason why God cares what you do with your body is because what you do with your body has spiritual significance. So the question for you and me today is this. Will you glorify God in your body? Will you run the race that God has set before you, casting off anything that would slow you down or hold you back so you can wholeheartedly pursue God's calling for your life? The Corinthian Christians were holding on to some things that were not helping them to mature and progress as disciples of Jesus and as witnesses for Jesus. Friends, is there anything in your life that is not helping you, that you're holding on to, that is not helping you to run the race that God has set before you? May we be those today who fix our eyes on Jesus and seek to glorify God in our bodies. As embodied beings, what we do with our bodies has spiritual significance, and knowing this helps us understand and respond to what Jesus did for us. Would you please stand with me and let's pray. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road, and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com. Thank you.